Well, good morning again to all of you, and for those of you who celebrate, happy Lunar New Year. Uh, as many of you know, uh, w- typically when I have the opportunities to preach on Sunday, we've been going through the one another's. And this morning we are going through a one another in a sense, but this one another that we're going through is not exactly something that we do in our own congregation, although we do do it at times, but it's more focused on people who are outside the church. We have the privilege this morning to look at basically, the salvation of others, right? This is, the, this is the, the theme that we're going to be looking at this morning is the salvation of others, caring about the salvation of others. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes this, First of all, then, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand as we come to your word. Thank you for uh, providing it to us, and we pray that uh, we would uh, respond to it uh, as we should. Thank you for uh, all that you've given. It's your sons, and we pray. Amen. Well, typically, when we pray to God, we're either praying for our needs, the needs of people who are dear to us, uh, or for the food that we're about to eat. And these are all valid forms of prayer. These are prayers that God wants us to pray. But the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, what do our prayers look like? Or what do our prayers look like? Do we pray because we want to, or do we just do it out of habit, right? This is what we do. We always pray before we eat. We always pray before we go to sleep. What do our prayers sound like? Are our prayers a one-way conversation with God where we kind of unload all of our requests on him, where we give him our honey-do list and ask him to do things for us? What do our prayers look like? What do they sound like? Now, I don't have the time this morning to go through all the different aspects of prayer, but the reason why I bring up these piercing questions regarding our prayer habits and our prayer life is not to shame those of you who do these things, because we are called to pray for our own needs, for the needs of others, and to even give thanks to God for our food. We're called to do that, but the intent is to remind us that prayer is much more than we normally think about when we think about prayer. It's bigger than the prayers that we pray. And it's to encourage us to strive for more when it does come to our prayers. So our major focus as we study prayer today is on how we are to pray for other people, particularly how we are to pray for those who are unbelievers. So this morning, we're going to find three encouragements to grow in our prayers for the salvation of others. Three encouragements to grow in our prayers for the salvation of others. The first encouragement is that uh, evangelistic prayer promotes godliness. The second is that evangelistic prayer pleases God. And the third is that evangelistic prayer accomplishes God's purposes. So first, evangelistic prayer promotes godliness. For those of you who are not as familiar with 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy was a letter written by Paul to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. And the purpose of this book, of this letter, was to help Timothy and the church understand how believers are to conduct themselves in the world. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul addresses a false doctrine that had crept its way into the church that perverted the law of God by teaching it inaccurately. And the main thrust of this inaccurate teaching was that salvation was offered to the Jews exclusively. 
The salvation was offered to the Jews exclusively. If the Gentiles wanted to be saved, they would have to become Jewish first. As a result, Paul wrote to correct the errors that found their way into the church. Now, in addition to correcting this error, Paul had the intention of encouraging Timothy as well. And so he encourages Timothy in verse 18 of chapter 1 to fight the good fight of faith. Chapter 2 then explains how, how Timothy can begin to fight the good fight of faith. Verse 1, first of all then, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men. As you read this verse, that wording, first of all then, right, should naturally cause you to pause and wonder, what's he talking about? Right, it signals to us that whatever comes next is vital enough to Paul, that he uses it, or he uses this point to illustrate an important aspect of fighting the good fight. The important part of fighting the good fight is prayer, right? or an important part is prayer. Paul lists out four different kinds of prayers that we are to pray, and these four different prayers are not an exhaustive list of how we are to pray or how we can pray, but the bigger uh, the bigger reason why they're here and, and emphasize is that uh, it, it's a reminder for us that prayer is important, right? All aspects of prayer are important. Now, by the way, before uh, we go into these different types of prayers, I recognize that, that uh, the different translations, the, the major translations that we have here at this church, NASB, ESV, and well, what I use, the LSB, they, they have different words for the the prayers, different translations for, for the prayers that are listed. Uh, they're all the same Greek word, and sometimes they're kind of jumbled in order. You can see that uh, in a little bit why they're kind of jumbled, but uh, just so that you don't get lost, if you want to look at the slide, you'll be able to follow where I'm at. Uh, but um, anyways, uh, the words are all the same. It's just the different nuances that are highlighted. Anyway, the first kind of prayer listed for us are petitions. Petitions can be thought of as requests to fill a need, and we understand that. Uh, whenever we have a request of our government, we tend to uh, try and fill out petitions, right? So petitions, it's a, a request to fill out a need, it's general. The second kind of prayer described for us are prayers, right? prayers. Paul uses the most general Greek word for prayer uh, that we find in the, in the Bible here, but something of note is that prayer, this word for prayer, is only directed to God. It's not directed to anybody else. It's only to God. The third kind of prayer described for us are requests. These requests can be understood as uh, intercessions and, and prayers on behalf of other people to a, uh, to a superior who can address the situation. Right? It's like, so, so this is and this is why in some of your translations, you'll see that swapped, right? Where uh, the first one's petitions, this one's requests. You might see it a little different, right? Because it's very similar in the sense that, like, we're submitting a request to a higher authority to do something about, a, about an issue. And finally, the fourth kind of prayer described are thanksgivings. These are prayers that give thanks to God. And in this particular context, it's giving thanks to God for certain people. Now, on their own, these four synonymous terms don't seem to really add too much to our understanding. It's almost kind of like, well, uh, why did we just do that? It didn't really help us understand anything. We know we're supposed to pray, big deal, right? What am I supposed to do with this? And, you know, to be honest, if we were looking at it on its face, I would agree with you and be like, yeah, that's not exactly that helpful. But when you look at the very end of verse 1, and look at who we are exhorted or urged to pray for. We are to pray these types of prayers. We are to pray petitions, have prayers, have requests, and thanksgivings for all men. By exhorting the people to pray for all men, Paul reminds his readers that the gospel is not exclusively for the Jews. It was not limited to the Jews. God desires to save Gentiles too. And that would have been really hard to hear for those who were taught to be exclusive in who they are to witness to. But these petitions, prayers, requests, and thanksgivings are all meant to be made on behalf of all unbelievers for their salvation. Think about that lack of qualification to Paul's exhortation. 
For those of you who are Christians, to be told to pray for unbelievers is not really that big of a deal, right? We would gladly pray for any nice unbeliever, right? We would gladly give thanks to God for any nice unbeliever, right? They're, they're nice to us. They're kind to us. They're our friends. But would you feel the same way about unbelievers who don't like you, who are not nice to you, who annoy you? Would you be willing to pray for the salvation of your school rivals or your work rivals, the cutthroat people who are trying to throw you off to the side and get a promotion over you? Would you pray for an unbeliever who takes and looks for every opportunity to make your life miserable and difficult? As you consider those questions, look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You see, Paul expands who are included in our prayers when we pray for all men to be saved. He's helping us see like, how far this prayer for all men goes. Believers are to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Basically, uh, not just big government, but small government too. In today's terms, we're not just praying for royalty. We're not just praying for prime ministers and presidents. But we're also praying for low-level civil authorities also, like mayors and city council people, school board people, and so on and so forth. Now, keep in mind, when Paul says that we are to pray for the salvation of all men, including these civic authorities, that Paul wrote 1 Timothy during the reign of Nero, Emperor Nero, the emperor who later famously burned down Rome in order to clear room for a new palace for himself. But when he saw that the people of Rome didn't care about his plans, and they were actually quite upset that Rome had burned down, he quickly turned and blamed the Christians because he thought, well, you know what? People don't like the Christians. They're a little, they think they're a little weird, so it's fine. Let's just scapegoat them. Right? And so he turned the blame on the Christians and it's like, yeah, persecute those Christians. They're responsible. Nero also continued the persecution of Christians by imprisoning them. And not only did he imprison them, but during those gladiator contests, he fed Christians to hungry lions, right? purposely starving the lions so that they would definitely go after the Christians in the arena. But not only that, right? if that wasn't enough, not only that, right? he would also take Christians and he would tie them up and light them on fire to light the way to his garden parties at night. Now, this is not a good dude. He's not a nice man. He's not a good king. And yet, Paul says, pray for the salvation for, all, for, for kings and all who are in authority. That's difficult to hear, isn't it? That's difficult to even want to do. Why should we pray for someone like this? And yet, what we're reminded of in Ezekiel 18.23, there's no slide for this, but Ezekiel 18.23, God says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. You would think that he would, right? Because it's like, well, finally, you get what you deserve. But God does not delight in the death of the wicked. At times, we, the people who've been shown the most grace in our lives, tend to delight in the death of the wicked. Now, I remember back, um, uh, back when Osama bin Laden was killed, right? Once we heard, hey, they got him. A lot of us were like, yeah, we got him. He's dead. Yes, right? And at the same time, right, yeah, did he cause a lot of pain? Did he cause a lot of damage? Absolutely, he did. Absolutely, he did. Right? But think about this. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Even him, even Osama, even Hitler, even Mao, even Mussolini, 
God does not delight in the death of the wicked. There's still mercy and there is still grace. Christ died for that too. And so, that highlights an important aspect of God's grace and compassion and mercy. That is for all people. And when he says all people, he doesn't mean all people except for the worst in human history. But it's for all people. And when you think about it, right, this idea, this Romans uh, 12 idea of vengeance belongs to the Lord, that really is true. Right? You let God deal with that. You let God deal with justice. But we pray for the salvation of all people. And that's such a cool thing to, to, and humbling thing to be reminded of, is that no matter who it is, right, we pray for their salvation. Because that's God's heart. That's God's mind. The same mercy that he's shown you and me is the same mercy and compassion that we ought to show other people, no matter how horrendous the things that they do. Right? That's difficult to hear. I know some of you internally are objecting to that right now and objecting hard. Be like, yeah, but no. No. We pray for the salvation of all because God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now, our situation is different from the Ephesian situations, right? Or for the Roman situation. But think about how difficult that is can be to hear, right? You're objecting probably right now, saying like, no, not for this guy, not for that guy. Do you know what he's done? Do you know what he said? We have to pray for them too? Yes. Yes. Why? Well, we'll explore more of this later. But part of the reason why we are exhorted to pray for these leaders, right, no matter how wicked they are, is that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, what does that mean? Tranquility and quietness was an ideal state of life, uh, essentially a peaceful life. And so we're praying that they would be saved so that they could make just decisions, that they can rule wisely. But we also understand that even if earthly authorities do not place their faith in Christ, God can still work through them. As we're praying for them, God can still work through them, their lives, their policies, so that they would inadvertently make life livable for his people. A great example of this is Cyrus of Persia. As some of you may remember from Pastor Henry's series in Isaiah, now I know that's been a few years ago, right? But if you remember in Isaiah 45, God, hundreds of years before Cyrus even gets on the scene, tells his people that Cyrus is going to come, and that Cyrus is going to be the one who takes their people out of exile and brings them back home. Cyrus is no believer in in God. Cyrus could care less. But he had a policy to make people more submissive, to let them kind of do what they want to do, bring them back to their homeland. And so God uses Cyrus and his policies to bring the people of Israel back home just like he promised. And now as God works through civic authorities in similar ways to this, right, to make life livable for us, we are reminded that we are to live in such a way where we're good testimonies to those around us. Right? The, the lives that we live are to be marked by godliness, right? being like God, and dignity. Dignity, like being respectful, being honorable. One way that we can, can contribute to the evangelistic witness to our civic leaders and to our city is through our behavior. It's through our conduct. If we are unruly, disrespectful, disruptive, basically living a life contrary to a life of tranquility and quietness, then others won't think that the gospel is great. They won't think that God is anything or that he's worth following. Or why? Why should people come to church to believe in and worship a God who supposedly loves them and saves them from their sins when some of the most unloving, ungracious, unethical, and unkind people they know are Christians. 
You wouldn't want to believe in a God whose followers don't even act according to his word, would you? So why would unbelievers want to fall after Christ if we look, talk, joke just like them? If we act just like them, what is the power of the gospel? Does it do anything? Is there any hope? There is none. If we act in such a way that basically says like, well, you know, this is my culture, this is what I grew up with, this is what I do. But why? Why? You see, these attributes of godliness and dignity are a key for us to consider as we evaluate our lives. If we truly have been saved, if we truly love God, right, that needs to show up in our lives, not in a legalistic way, right, but it needs to show up in, in our lives in terms of a consistency way. Right? Are you applying the truths that you know? Do we live in such a way where people can tell that we actually are becoming more godly, that we actually are trying to become more like Jesus Christ? Because right? that's the whole point of our salvation, isn't it? Romans 8.29 reminds us that we are saved so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. Are we being conformed in the image of Christ? Are we basically saying, well, you know, I'll be conformed to the image of Christ in these particular ways, but these other areas, like, they don't fall under the jurisdiction of God, so I can do whatever I want, right? What's our attitude? Are we trying to be conformed in all aspects to Christ, right? If you get Plato and you put it in a Plato mold, does it only partially show up in the in the form that the mold takes, right? Only if you only press partially, right? But if you press that thing down, it's supposed to come out looking like the mold, right? It's supposed to come out like that. Are we like that? When the word of God is preached and it's heard and it's understood and it's applied, do we come out looking more like Jesus or are we only half done? Do we, when we think about our lives, right, do we live in such a way that we care about the things of God? Right? When he calls us to pray, do we pray for other people? Do we have a desire to be godly witnesses to our community? Right? Not just by giving them stuff. Anyone can give them stuff. Do we desire their salvation? Do we desire to show them Jesus in all that we do? One church that has done a pretty good job at this, that strive to pray for their city leaders and live in such a way that their community can see the value of the church is Faith Church of Lafayette, Indiana. They're most well known for their biblical counseling ministry, but they also are known for their heart for their community as well. Um, They have demonstrated and modeled prayer for their governmental leaders, but their prayers have also led them to strive to care for the people in their community also. As a result, the government in Lafayette looks upon the ministries of of faith church very favorably. And when you have uh, court cases where they recommend that the person goes to counseling after, they actually, the government, the courts actually recommend faith church as a viable alternative for counseling. Biblical counseling. This is the government saying, you can go get biblical counseling. You don't have to go get secular counseling. You can go get biblical counseling. That's crazy. That's unheard of, right? San Francisco would never, right? They would never. It was like, Bible, no way, right? Uh, The city had a piece of property, had some land that no one wanted to come in and develop, and it was just sitting there. And so what do they say? They, they, they came to the church and said, we will pay you to take this land and to develop it to create a community center for, our, for the people in, in, our, in our neighborhood. Right? Unheard of. Why did the government of Lafayette entrust Faith Church with these opportunities? A lot of it has to do with the fact that Faith Church is consistent in their witness. Right? They don't just pray for their leaders. That prayer leads them to action. Right? It leads them to godly living. Right? Their godliness is evident outwardly. And so the people, the government, responds. And I'm not saying 
that we need to copy and paste Faith Church's model of ministry here at SFBC. But I bring them up as a reminder to us that if we are faithful in the little things, if we're faithful in praying, if we're faithful in watching our lives and our doctrine, if we are faithful in taking the tangible steps to grow in godliness, then we will live genuine Christian lives before the world. And when the world sees genuine Christianity in our lives compared to cultural Christianity, compared to loveless Christianity, compared to any other false form of Christianity, they will recognize God's hand in it. And hopefully, that will give us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. That they would be a little more willing to listen because they see that we practice what we preach. But what that means is that we have to check ourselves. Right? How are we doing? Are we striving to be faithful in the little things? Does our love for God translate to a genuine love and concern for people? And does that love for people lead to a genuine desire to share the gospel with other people so that they can receive the grace of God? Does that love for people encourage us to think about how we can be better witnesses of Christ so that people will not be hindered in coming to faith because we are not like Christ in our motives, in our behavior, in our words? If we begin to truly pray for the salvation of others, for the glory of God and for the purposes of God, rather than just praying for ourselves and our needs, it will result in a more God-focused way of life. Right? When we're God-focused, it's really hard for us to be selfish because we're putting Him first. Right? We're putting Him in the center of our priorities. When we are more God-focused than we are us-focused, we will inevitably grow to be more like our Savior. And that brings us to the second encouragement to grow in our prayers for the salvation of others, which is that evangelistic prayer pleases God. Verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior? Prayer. Right? That's what Paul just exhorted Timothy to do, is prayer. Right? To pray. To pray all sorts of prayers for all men, including kings and all who are in authority. Now, why? Right? Why is the prayer for kings and all who are in authority, all men basically, uh, acceptable, good and acceptable to God? Well, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Now, here in verse 4, we run into what can be for some a potentially hairy issue, as some people may ask, what does Paul mean when he says God desires all men to be saved? Right? Who, who are all men? Now, for those of you who love systematic theology, you're already going someplace, right? You're already half, halfway down the street, and you already know. Particular redemption, right? limited atonement. Right? It's so easy to jump there, but that's not what this passage is talking about. Because Paul, his objective is not to talk about the extent of the atonement. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Paul's not writing to address the issue of whether Christ's death was for everyone in the whole world or only for those who choose to be saved. Right? That's another topic for another time. And that's not the point of this passage. Right? So we're not going to do that today. If you want to talk about it, we can. Right? Or perhaps come to Pastor Ray's uh, ordination exam and see, see what his answer is. Right? Um, but uh, that's not for today. Anyways, the main point of this passage is that evangelistic prayer is of foremost importance to a believer because God wants us to pray for them, or because God wants all people to be saved. When you look back up at verse 3, right, you'll see that language of it is good and acceptable. Good and acceptable. This is not a direct quotation, but this language echoes the Old Testament sacrificial system, as people were supposed to offer that which was good and acceptable to God. Now, why does Paul use that language, allude to that language, that reference, when talking about praying for other people's salvation? 
Well, remember, the false doctrine that he was addressing was one of exclusivity, that the gospel is only for the Jews. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's not just for the Jews. In fact, it is God's very heart that all people come to salvation. Right? So when he's saying that it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior to pray for all men, Paul is reminding his readers that the gospel was never meant for Israel only. Right? God intends to bring all the nations to himself. All who believe from the nations receive God's salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ. This is what God previewed for everyone back in Genesis 12, 3, when he said that it would be through Abraham's family that all of the world, or that all the families of the world, of the earth, will be blessed. The legitimacy of Gentile salvation is also seen in Acts 15. When the Jerusalem Council made it clear that the scriptures teach that the Gentiles can come to faith in Jesus without becoming Jewish first. The heart of God, that all mankind might be saved, is also evidenced for us in 2 Peter 3.9. Where we see that God's desire is not to unleash his wrath upon this whole earth. His, he desires for all men to be saved. Right, that any, he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It doesn't say here that God is not willing for any Jewish person to perish. Right? It doesn't say that. Right? The text does not say that. It says he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right? What is all? All. Right? God's desire is that the peoples from the nations will not perish. Now, he does give us a choice, though, right? Whether we will believe him and repent or not. And so there will be some who will face the wrath of God for their sins. But it is not his desire that any perish, right? He's patient. He gives us all time. He gives us all an opportunity to hear the gospel and repent of our sins. That is the graciousness of our God. The salvation that God desires all people to come to is accompanied by the full knowledge of the truth. God's desire is that people are not only saved from their sins, but they also love, but that they also love him with all of their minds. There's more to that, of course. You know, you can fill it out for, for me, right? But here it talks about the knowledge, right? So we're going to talk about loving God with all of our minds. When God wants us to love him right, with the full knowledge of the truth. That means that we know what his word has to say. But not only do we know what his word has to say, because right, here at SFBC, we, we like to study things. Right? We like to know what God's word has to say. We like theology generally. Right? But if that, that, if that knowledge doesn't translate to life, if it doesn't translate to real-life reality, if it doesn't translate to application, it's nothing. It's not worth it. It doesn't do anything. It's just sitting in your brain. God's not pleased by us hoarding all this theological knowledge so that we can have meaningless fights with one another on the Internet. And if you've been on the Internet and you've been in Christian circles, you know what I'm talking about. It's, this knowledge is not for, for us just to be like, ha ha, I know more of the Bible than you do. Right? That's not what it's for. It's to apply to our lives. Right? It's not just for, for, uh, for, for pastors and those theological types. It's for all of us. Theology is inherently practical for every believer. Right? When we know what the Word of God has to say, those truths have to translate to real-life realities. Brothers and sisters, do we strive to know the truth and to live it out? Yeah, that means we ought to read our Bibles. But does it also translate to prayer? Does knowing what God's word has to say lead you to prayer? Not just for your own unsaved loved ones, whom you are rightfully concerned for, by the way. 
but also for our neighbors, but also for the people on the street, but also for our government leaders. Now, I know some of you, you don't like our government leaders. I ain't going to say anything more about that, right? But do you pray for them? Do you pray for them, for their salvation? Right? Not that God would have wrath in them, but that, that, that he would save them. Do you pray for that? I know for me personally, I definitely can grow more in this area. Right? That I can be praying more for not just my own family and not just for the people here at the church, but also for the people outside the church too. Right? We can all do better in this way. And if you're doing better than me in this area, great. Praise the Lord. Excel still more. Right? Excel still more. Don't just pray for our church, but pray for others also. Don't just go to the Lord with your list of concerns. Consider praying about the things that he's passionate about. Consider praying about the things that he wants. We normally don't pray like that, right? It's mostly about our concerns, the things that we care about. But do we pray about what he cares about? If we pray about the things that God cares about, the things that he wants, we will please him as we align our wills with his. Again, don't get me wrong. You can still have your prayer concerns that you bring before the Lord, but don't just pray for your concerns or the concerns of other people. When you think about the disciples' prayer, praying for God's will to be done, and his kingdom to come is all a part of prayerful worship that pleases the Lord. And so, do we pray like that? Can we pray like that? Yes. By the grace of God, yes, we can. But that's what our aim ought to be. Is to pray, not that our will be done, but that his will be done. Right? And that's, that's, a, that's a cool prayer too. Right? Because when you pray that, that prayer... Thy will be done. It's not just God's will be done, right? But God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does God get his way in heaven? Yes, right? (laughs) He does. When we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're saying, God, the same way that your will is done in heaven, we pray that that will be done here. We're praying for the advancement of God's salvation plan so that it's basically one and the same. That's what we're praying for. That's what we ought to be passionate about. If that doesn't get you out of bed in the morning, we ought to think about why not. The passion for the glory of God in the salvation of all people should be something that drives us to worship, that drives us to obedience. But we don't just obey for obedience sake. There's more to it as well. So that brings us to our third encouragement uh, to grow in our prayers for the salvation of others, which is that evangelistic prayer accomplishes God's purposes. Evangelistic prayer accomplishes God's purposes. Now, I understand that that sounds pretty similar to evangelistic prayer pleases God. Basically, if you want to think about it this way, the outline that I gave you this morning for our text could be thought of as this way. It could be thought of like this. There's the exhortation to pray. There's the reason for the exhortation to pray, and then the reason for the reason for the exhortation to pray. And that's kind of how, how we're thinking about it. So now, why should prayers be made for all men to be saved? Well, Paul, he points back to the character of God, and, um, and he gives us the answer, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. Those words, for there is one God, right? That's gives us echoes of the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, right? The Lord your God is one, right? There are no other gods besides Yahweh. Therefore, salvation can be found in no other name, right? Only God is able to save us. That is why we are reminded that there is only one way to have a right relationship with God. There are not multiple paths to heaven. It's not, well, Christianity is right, so is Buddhism, so is Mormonism, so is Jehovah's Witness, and and so on and so forth, right? It's not that, There is only one God, and because there is only one God, there is only one mediator who can save us. There's only one way to heaven, and it is through the man, Christ Jesus. Only one person is qualified to act as this mediator between God and man. 
Paul emphasizes first the humanity of Christ, right? By saying, like, it's the man, Christ Jesus, right? So he's like emphasizing that man part, the humanity part. But he, Paul also reminds us that it's not, that, that, that Jesus is not just another guy. He's not just another guy named Jesus, because back in the day, Jesus was very popular, right? He's not, he's not just like any of these other guys named Jesus, right? He's different. He's Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God. The God-man alone is able to bring terms of peace between God the Father and sinful humanity. In, in a sense, this is fulfilling Job's wish of a mediator, right? Because what does Job wish in Job 9? He's like, were there, there were a mediator who could put his hands on both of us and bring us together, right? Job understood that there was no mediator at that time, that there was no one who could put his hand on God and live, right? And someone who could also put his hand on humanity and bring the two, uh, the two parties together. But now we have one, right? Now we have one in Christ. He's 100% God and 100% man. And because of that, he uniquely represents both parties to each other, right? He alone can bring us together. And he does so as a ransom on our behalf. This was all a part of God's plan. He wasn't surprised, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't like, what do I do now? Let me fix it. This was already a part of his plan. He was not surprised. He was not taken aback. He was not shocked. This was his plan from the very beginning, that his son would come to this earth as a man and save sinful humanity by dying on the cross, by paying the ransom price to set us free from God's penalty sin. Sometimes we think that it's not God's penalty from sin. Or sometimes we think that when Christ died on the cross, it was to buy our salvation from Satan. He doesn't buy our salvation from Satan. Right? In hell, Satan's not even the king of hell. We tend to think that we, you know, because, of, uh, the, because of cartoons and stuff. But Satan is not the king of hell. He is not in charge of hell. Satan is the chief captive of hell. The ransom price that Christ pays for our salvation is God's ransom price. Right? Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. Who do we owe death to? It's God. Our sin earns for us eternal wrath from God. Not from Satan. From God. So when Christ pays that ransom price for us, when he rises from the dead to provide eternal life for all who believe, he's giving us a gift from God. If I, want to, if I put it another way, basically God saved us from being the target of his rightfully deserved wrath against all sin through himself, through his son. God saved us from himself by himself. The fact that there is only one mediator capable of saving mankind is a huge reminder to us that the salvation of all mankind could only come through Jesus. Nobody else is qualified. If people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to have any hope of salvation whatsoever, it's going to be through him. Therefore, when we pray that all people will come to saving faith, we are praying that prayer that God's will be done here on this earth and for his kingdom to come. Because that's his desire, that's his heart, that people would believe in him and be adopted into his family. Verse 7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The only reason why Paul risked life and limb to bring the gospel to the nations was because he understood the mission. Right? Because God himself set Paul aside to bring the gospel to the nations. And this call that Paul had to bring the gospel to the nations was not something that Paul just kind of came up with on his own one day, right? or that, or that, uh, that he, he just made up. Because in Acts 9, 15, 16, we see God say to Ananias, um, who was in charge of, of uh, getting Paul ready. He says, go. 
go basically to Paul, go for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You see, Paul's ministry was, uh, to the Gentiles was divinely appointed by God himself. And so if Paul, Paul, because Paul understood the mission, because he understands that the gospel needs to go out, when people tried to limit salvation to the Jews alone, Paul spoke up. Right? When the mission is threatened, that's why Paul spoke out. Right? If you look at the Pauline epistles, sometimes like uh, the, the letters of Paul, sometimes you're just like, man, Paul, you're kind of harsh, man. Right? You're, you're pretty, you kind of jump down people's throats sometimes. Why do you do that? Why are you so passionate about the Bible? Why are you so passionate about doctrine? Why can't you just let people be, Paul? Why can't you just let people live? It's because he understood that doctrine matters. That what we believe about what God has said and how we live that out matters. And so when the mission is threatened, he's like, no, we cannot go to the left or to the right. We have to stay on track. We have to stay on track. If you limit the gospel, if you make it say something that it does not say, if you pretend like we can get away with not praying for other people because they don't fit our ethnic group or they don't fit our standard of this or that, that's anti-gospel. That's anti-God's purpose. God has a heart for the nations. And when we pray for the nations to know him and to believe in him, we align ourselves with him and with his will, when we pray for what he wants, when we pray for others to be saved, and when we try to live our lives to reflect God in all aspects, with all godliness, with all dignity, with all integrity, then we take our part of God's desire for us to be his witnesses throughout the whole earth. When you look at Revelation... And you look at the reason why the angels are going around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you look at the reason why they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain for all glory, for all honor. But why are they saying that? Because of Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. Because he earned for us salvation. And that's why when the nations gather together, what do we say? Salvation belongs to the Lord, and we glorify God together. God is glorified when people come to salvation. And so when we pray for that, we're praying, God, please glorify yourself. Please accomplish your purposes. Right? That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. As a Christian, you should long for that because that's what matters to God. And if we love him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our strength, then what matters to God matters to us. Right? And we submit all of our lives to him. Right? Any, any agenda, any preference that we have is out the door. Because all that matters to us is God. His agenda his glory, his preferences, his purposes. That's all that matters. Right? We don't live like that. But by God's grace, we can. By God's grace, we can strive for that. So let's strive for that together. This morning, we were exhorted by Paul to pray bigger. Yes, we can pray for our needs and for the needs of others, we know. But we also want to pray for the salvation of the nations. Evangelistic prayers are prayers that God wants us to pray. And when we pray evangelistically, we grow in our godliness as we align ourselves with the will of God. When we pray evangelistically, we do our best to please the Lord by being obedient to his will. And when we pray evangelistically, we do our part in God's big picture plan of salvation for humanity. The act of prayer, of praying, might not seem like much. It might seem like it doesn't really do too much. But this is the most powerful act we can do. This is God's given means of grace for us to 
empower ministry. And when we pray, when we pray for God's will to be done in our lives, that's when we're saying, God, we want you to work. We want you to act. Help us act in accordance to your will. As a church, that's what we strive to do. So let's be a praying church. Whether that be a part of our prayer ministry that meets on Mondays, our community group, uh, our fellowships, our meetups, or even our private lives, every aspect of our lives should be marked by prayer. Let us be a church that truly desires that the Lord's will be done, not only in our lives, but in the world. Before we pray and sing in response to these truths, some application questions for you all to consider this week are uh, as follows. Who are the close people in your lives that you've been praying for that would come to saving faith? How can you commit to praying for them more? And what can you practically do to be a witness to them? I added some words there, but same thing. Um, Question two. Who are people that you haven't thought about praying for who need to come to saving faith? Number three, what are some practical ways that we can grow in godliness and dignity so that we do not hinder our gospel witness to those around us? These are just some things for us to consider uh, as we we, uh, prepare ourselves to sing in response. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word and for how it reminds us of all the different ways that we can grow. And in particular, our attention this morning was brought to the fact that we ought to be praying more evangelistically for those around us. We pray for the salvation of our president, of our senators, of our representatives, of our governors, of our mayors, of all civic authorities that you've given us. We pray for their salvation, not just so that life can be easy for us, but because we know that you care about that. You care about them. That they are not just nameless people, but that they all bear the image of you. And since you do not desire for any to perish, we recognize that even as they are right now, you don't desire for them to perish either. And so we pray earnestly for their salvation. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to consider how we can grow, how we can be a better witness of the power of the gospel to save as we interact with the people that you bring us uh, to in our lives. Help us, Lord, to strive to live godly lives, not so that we can thumb our nose at them and say we're better than them, but so that we can hopefully have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So that hopefully, if it is your will, that you might bring them to salvation, that you can add to your kingdom even more. So we pray earnestly for the salvation of those around us, Lord. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.